Welcome. This is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 81 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today is an update on recent OFAC sanctions enforcement actions and compliance trends. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me today on Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Before we get started, two points. First, please subscribe to our podcast and rate the podcast to help let other compliance professionals know about the podcast. Second, I wanted to mention that my law firm, the Volkoff Law Group, provides ethics and compliance program services, including trade compliance. In particular, we provide assistance and counseling on compliance with Department of Treasury's OFAC regulations, Department of Commerce's Export Administration regulations, and the State Department's ITAR regulations. We assist companies in reviewing specific transactions, implementing effective compliance programs, and responding to agency requests for information or responding to an enforcement action. We've helped a number of companies to conduct voluntary disclosures, audits, and internal investigations as necessary. We're very familiar and work with businesses uh, to ensure compliance with sanctions programs, in particular involving Iran, Cuba, Russia, Venezuela, and other countries. Uh, We secure licenses and approvals needed for export transactions under EAR and ITAR from the Department of Commerce and State Department, respectively. If interested in our trade compliance services, please contact me at mvolkoff at volkofflaw.com. Well, thanks for joining us today. Um, I wanted to get started early in the year uh, in talking about sanctions compliance and sanctions enforcement because we've seen a lot of activity, uh, OFAC, Uh, The Department of Treasury's Office of Foreign Asset Control has gotten off to a fast start. Plus, we've seen uh, a big change with regard to the Venezuela sanctions program and the designation of PETAVASA, uh, which has had a big impact in uh, the energy, uh, oil and gas industry. Um, So far this year, OFAC has already started off with four enforcement actions. Uh, They're off to a much faster start. Uh, than 2018 when they were busy uh, dealing with uh, reimposing the Iran sanctions uh, program and dealing with the Russia uh, oligarch sanctions program as well. And that uh, resulted in 2018. They didn't get their first enforcement action out till June of 2018. Here, what's different in 2019 so far is OFAC is putting out a flurry, at least four since the beginning of the year uh, enforcement actions along with uh, the big significant change in the Venezuela's sanctions program. So let me start by let's talk about the change in the Venezuela sanctions program and the designation of PETAVASA and then I want to go through the four enforcement actions because there's some real uh, interesting issues and implications for uh, compliance. Um, Venezuela is undergoing a real political upheaval, we know that, Um, The embattled uh, Venezuelan president, Nicolas Maduro, has sort of precipitated a humanitarian crisis that's driven about three million Venezuelans to flee abroad. Uh, We have widespread protests against the country's chronic violence, inflation, corruption, and shortages of uh, basic goods. And the political winds are now shifting away from Maduro and towards the new interim president, Juan Guaidaido. Um, And so uh, on January 25th, 2019, uh, uh, President Trump issued a new executive order which expanded previous sanctions against Venezuela 
to include any person who has acted or purported to act directly or indirectly for or on behalf of the Maduro regime. Uh, three days later, the OFAC added uh, uh, Petrovesa, Petroleus de Venezuela, uh, Petrovesa, the state-owned oil company that is per perhaps Maduro's most important source of revenue, to its list of specially designated nationals and blocked persons. So they're now on the SDN list. This action effectively forbids U.S. persons from dealing with PETAVESA or any companies that are majority owned by PETAVESA. So the targeting of Venezuela's oil sector marks a real shift in U.S. foreign policy. And uh, the reason, you know, the U.S. sort of avoided that before was to risk uh, to, you know, not cause a rise in gas prices and further harm to the Venezuelan people. So uh, Petavesa's addition to the SDN list uh, comes in response to the sort of worsening situation and is intended to obviously uh, force Maduro's surrender. Um, the implications for U.S. companies with business in Venezuela are significant. Recognizing this, however, OFAC issued a series of general licenses, and this is you have to be very careful here in reviewing these general licenses and the specific language and interpretation and guidance. Um, it's caused a lot of consternation to, for people, and we're working with a number of uh, companies in this area. Um, these general licenses basically are giving time uh, to wind down pre-existing dealings with PETAVESA. Um, and they're designed to sort of help the, ease the transition and minimize the impact on the U.S. economy. Uh, and there's certain categories of otherwise prohibited transactions which are allowed for a period of time. So um, the most broadly applicable authorization is General License 12, which allows U.S. companies to engage in transactions uh, necessary to wind down their business dealings with PETAVESA until February 27th, which uh, has passed, 12 a.m. And there, were, there was an authorization for temporary export or import of most goods and services to and from PETAVESA before the deadline. Um, and that had to relate to business dealings that stemmed from contracts or operations that were in place prior to PETAVESA's placement on the SDM list. There also, General License 12A also provides a broader time frame until April 28, 2019 for finishing up pre-established deals that facilitate the import of petroleum products into the U.S. So obviously here's the OFAC's intent is to soften the blow on the U.S. gas prices by ensuring that the oil supply from Venezuela is not cut off too rapidly because we obviously purchase a lot of oil from PETAVESA. Uh, and so uh, a significant percentage of their exports are to the United States. So for the time being, payments that are made to PETAVESA under these exceptions must be paid into uh, a blocked interest-bearing account that's maintained separately within the U.S. Several other general licenses help mitigate some of the sanctions' practical consequences. Under General License 10, for example, U.S. persons who are physically located within Venezuela are permitted to purchase gasoline and other petroleum products for personal use. General License 14 allows transactions with PETAVESA for the purpose of conducting official U.S. government business. General License 8 authorizes several large U.S. oil companies with extensive Venezuela-based operations additional time until July 27th 
2019 to transition out of Venezuela. Um, so there's a lot that's going on. Uh, further measures are not off the table, especially if Maduro continues to res uh, resist. And OFAC has advised that the path to sanctions relief for PDVSA and its subsidiary is through the transfer of control of the company to interim president Juan Guaidaido. Um, so uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin put it, quote, the United States is holding accountable those responsible for Venezuela's tragic decline and will continue, continue to use the full suite of its diplomatic and economic tools to support interim president Juan Guaidaido the National Assembly, and the Venezuelans' people's efforts to restore their democracy. So that's an area to keep watching. And obviously, uh, if there is a transfer of control, I would expect the uh, sanctions to be um, lifted right away against PDVSA. Um, there are companies that are seeking specific licenses to complete ongoing transactions beyond the February 28th deadline or beyond the April uh, 27th or 29th deadline. So this is uh, something that we have to uh, sort of keep uh, on top of and see as things go on. So let's go now to OFAC and their enforcement actions. Uh, and there have been four very, very interesting sanctions settlements. Uh, and they're off to a, a busy start. And perhaps the message here. Uh, is you better get your supply chain in order and you better know that your supply chain is in order as well as your distribution chain. So if you look at it like this, we distribute our products, let's say, and we use third parties, we have to make sure that our third parties don't in turn sell our goods to um, Iran or other or prohibited countries or take PDVSA. Similarly, in our supply chain, we have to make sure that we're not buying products that are used uh, in the production of our goods that come from uh, prohibited entities as well. And uh, dare I say, there's not been enough attention placed on this. And even uh, the first enforcement action I'm going to talk about highlights the risk and highlights the danger that people who, even when you don't know that it's coming from, uh, your supplies are coming from, or inputs are coming from a prohibited entity, that you can be uh, held accountable. Remember, I've always said OFAC is a civil enforcement uh, agency, and uh, they border on sort of strict liability in certain circumstances. So Elf Cosmetics is the first case, and this highlights this. Uh, OFAC announced a $996,000 settlement with Elf Cosmetics, which is a California cosmetics company, for violating the North Korean sanctions regulations. Elf violated the sanctions by importing 156 shipments of false eyelash kits from two suppliers in China that in turn obtained materials sourced by suppliers from North Carolina, uh, North Carolina, North Korea. A lot, a big difference there. The total value of the illegal shipments was approximately 4.4 million. Elf's OFAC compliance program was non-existent or inadequate, and Elf's violations and failure to act occurred as part of its supply chain risk management. And they failed to discover that approximately 80% of the false eyelash kits supplied by these Chinese-based suppliers contained materials from North Korea. 
So ELF self-disclosed the apparent violations. And as noted by OFAC, ELF failed to exercise sufficient supply chain due diligence while sourcing products from a region that poses a high risk of connection to North Korea. So to remediate, ELF uh, implemented supply chain audits that verify the country of origin of goods and services used in ELF products, uh, adopted new procedures to require suppliers to sign certificates of compliance stating that they will comply with all U.S. export controls and trade sanctions, Three, conducted an enhanced supplier audit that included verification of payment information related to production materials and review of supplier bank statements. So this enforcement action highlighted really the risks for companies that do not conduct uh, supply chain due diligence when sourcing products from overseas, particularly in a region in which uh, the uh, North Korea, as well as other sanctioned countries or regions, is known to export goods. So OFAC's message here is develop, implement, and maintain a risk-based approach to sanctions compliance and implement processes and procedures to identify and mitigate areas of risk. To me, if your, uh, your supply chain touches risky countries, uh, you have to do more due diligence than if your supply chain touches low-risk areas. Uh, such steps could include but are not limited to implementing supply chain audits with country of origin verification, conducting mandatory OFAC sanctions training for suppliers, and routinely and frequently performing audits of suppliers. The second OFAC uh, enforcement action, uh, which happened in the beginning of February 2019, was against Cole Morgan. Uh, and Cole Morgan uh, is a Virginia-based company, and they had a Turkish affiliate by the name of Elsom, and it involved uh, it was a sanctions uh, violations involving six violations of the Iran sanctions program, and uh, Cole Morgan had to pay thirteen thousand three hundred eighty-one dollars. Um, in conjunction with this. Uh, enforcement action, OFAC also sanctioned uh, an individual, Evren Kayakaran, the ELSA manager who was primarily responsible for the uh, conduct. Between 2013 and 2015, ELSA uh, serviced machines containing ELSA products that were located in Iran and provided products, parts, or services valued at about 14867000 With knowledge, they were destined to Iran end users. Cole Morgan acquired Elsom in early 2013 uh, and made, and thereby, when that happened in 2013, Elsom became subject to the Iran sanctions program, uh, Cole Morgan obviously being a U.S. company. And so Cole Morgan uh, hired a law firm and external auditing and consulting company to perform sanctions due diligence on Elsom. And the pre-acquisition due diligence identified that Elsom conducted business with customers in Iran. So to address the problem, Cole Morgan implemented a pre- and post-acquisition compliance strategy. They identified Elsom's Iran-related customers and applied controls to block those customers from making future orders. They communicated with the Elsom employees of U.S. sanctions against Iran, the legal requirement for Elsom to comply with the Iran sanctions, and Elsom's obligation uh, to not sell products or services to Iran. They also conducted in-person training 
and they performed additional manual reviews of ELSIM's customer database on a proactive and continuing basis to identify any sanctions-related customers. Uh, they required ELSIM senior management to certify on a quarterly basis that no ELSIM products or services were being sent or provided to Iran, and they ordered uh, event, uh, ELSIM senior management to immediately cease transactions with Iran, including any technical support. So those were all the efforts that uh, Cole Morgan, and it had, it, had they not done that, the penalty here would have been a lot worse. But basically, they did almost everything they could do in their power to make sure that Elsom discontinued their business with Iran. And notwithstanding all of these efforts, Elsom employees continued to deal with Iran customers, and they hid the activities from Cole Morgan. And with full knowledge of the applicable prohibition, they sent employees to Iran to fulfill service agreements and engaged in other transactions related to Iran. Uh, and frankly, uh, it's kind of interesting that Elsa management even threatened to fire employees if they refused to go to Iran. Um, Elsom employees were directed by management to falsify corporate records and list the travel as vacation rather than business-related. So over the two years that these illegal transactions took place, uh, Elsom management regularly and fraudulently certified to Cole Morgan that no Elsom products or services were being sent to Iran. It was only after an Elsom employee filed an internal complaint with Cole Morgan using the uh, hotline in late October 2015 that the conduct came to light. So... Uh, Elsom managers also attempted to obstruct the investigation by instructing Elsom employees to delete references to Iran and company records and misleading Cole Morgan's attorneys. Uh, they tried to delete emails uh, related to Iran. Uh, Cole Morgan, though, was able to retrieve those documents, uncovered the apparent violations, conducted a full investigation, and then disclosed its findings to OFAC in a comprehensive report. Obviously, they uh, fired all the managers who were involved and undertake took new remediation efforts, uh, including enhanced training, requiring now pre-approval from an officer outside Tur Turkey for service trips, and requiring Elsom to notify its major Turkey customers that Elsom cannot provide goods or services to Iran. So this case, again, highlights the importance of due diligence, uh, particularly with regard to affiliates, subsidiaries, or counterparties who are known to transact with OFAC-sanctioned companies, uh, countries or persons, uh, and that otherwise pose a high risk, obviously, given their geographic location. Uh, and it also uh, underscores the importance of proactive control uh, controls when U.S. persons acquire companies with pre-existing relationships with sanctioned persons and jurisdictions. Okay, uh, the third action uh, happened with Applicam, and it's very similar here in terms of, again, a subsidiary engaging uh, in activity that violated um, the U.S. Uh, company's uh, owner's policies. So, uh, in yet another example of a failure of companies to address compliance and to follow up on it and to ensure ultimate compliance, Applicam, which is a German company, agreed to pay 5.5 million 
for 304 violations of the Cuban uh, sanctions program for transactions that occurred between May 2012 and February 2016. Um, Applichem engaged in these prohibited transactions in the sale of chemical reagents to customers in Cuba. So in January of 2012, Illinois, uh, Illinois Tool Works, ITW, in Glenview, Glenview, Illinois, acquired Applichem, the German manufacturer of chemicals and reagents for the pharmaceutical and chemical industries. During the acquisition no, uh, negotiations, ITW noticed that Applichem's website listed certain countries subject to U.S. economic and trade sanctions. Uh, ITW warned Applichem that it would be required to cease all Cuban business after the acquisition. After the acquisition closed, an ITW official sent Applichem's former owners, who were still working at the merged company, a memo explaining um, their guidelines and their policy prohibiting any transactions with Cuban customers. Applichem, however, uh, ignored the two separate warnings from uh, ITW and continued to complete and collect on existing orders with Cuban nationals under pre-acquisition contracts. Uh, ITW discovered this continuing sales activity, warned the former owners yet again to cease all sales to Cuba, and then submitted in 2013 a voluntary disclosure to OFAC on January 23, 2013. And ITW represented to OFAC that all Cuba transactions were canceled. Uh, two years later, well, almost two years, a little bit more than two years, actually. May 29, 2015, OFAC issued a warning letter to ITW concerning these transactions. On January 27, 2016, however, ITW received on its ethics helpline an anonymous report that Applichem continued to conduct sales to Cuba through a third party in Berlin. ITW launched an internal investigation which confirmed that, that Applichem's former owners continued its Cuba business. ITW learned that Applichem implemented what it called Caribbean procedures, which was a code referring to Cuba to ensure that no documents were prepared or retained relating to its continuing Cuba business. Applichem then engaged an external logistics company and independent consultant to prepare shipping documents and declarations. And in fact, Applichem conducted training sessions uh, for Applichem staff to further the illegal scheme and ensure that it was hidden from ITW. At Applichem, the illegal procedures were known and an open secret. So prior to the helpline report, Applichem employees reported the continuing uh, misconduct to the general manager of ITD, ITW's relevant uh, division. The general manager sought assurances from the intermediary company that a pending shipment would not be diverted to Cuba, but did not initiate a fuller internal investigation at that time. Clearly, the general manager at ITW, when learning this, should have raised this issue up to compliance, up to legal, and uh, they could have caught the behavior earlier. ITW earned over 2.8 million euros through these illegal transactions, and uh, the enforcement action here again underscores the importance of implementing risk-based controls such as regular audits to ensure subsidiaries are complying with their obligations, 
performing follow-up due diligence on acquisitions of foreign persons known to engage in historical transactions with sanctioned persons and jurisdictions, and appropriately responding to derogatory information where the general manager here didn't regarding the sanctions compliance efforts of foreign persons subject to the jurisdiction of the U.S. Okay, let's turn to the final um, enforcement action, and this was where OFAC reached a settlement uh, with ZAG, uh, a U.S.-based company, in which ZAG agreed to pay a penalty of $506,000 for five apparent violations of the Iran sanctions program. Between July 2014 and January 2015, ZAG purchased in five separate transactions 263,000 uh, metric tons of Iranian origin clinker and from a company based in the United Arab Emirates and then resold it to a company in Tanzania. Uh, OFAC alleges that ZAP knew that the clinker was, source, was sourced from Iran and the value of the shipments was almost $15 million. Just to show that we can learn lots of new things, uh, for our own education, clinker is a binder powder that's used in many cement products. So it's traded internationally in large quantities, and cement manufacturers use it to make various cement-based products. So there you go. We can always learn something new from OFAC. Uh, ZAP uh, voluntarily disclosed the apparent violations. In April 2014, ZAP signed a contract with the Tanzania country in which ZAP agreed to supply approximately 400,000 metric tons of clinker manufactured by a company in India. In June of 2014, the Indian supplier sent an email to ZAG's managing director uh, of Asia-Pacific, Middle East, and East Africa regions, notifying ZAG that it would not be able to supply ZAG with sufficient cement clinker by a July 5, 2014 shipping date. So ZAG then goes to the Tanzanian customer and says, can we reschedule the date for the first shipment? And the Tanzanian company objected to any delay and threatened to cancel the contract. So the ZAB, ZAG managing director then found a business contact in a trading company in the UAE, which was capable of providing Iranian origin cement clinker. ZAG's managing director agreed to purchase the cement clinker and mistakenly relied on the UAE company's representation that the cement clinker was not subject to the Iran sanctions program. The ZAG managing director also knew that the cement clinker was being shipped from an Iranian port. OFAC specifically cited ZAG's deficient due diligence process for review and approval of the transactions the fact that ZAG's senior management knew that ZAG was purchasing and reselling goods of Iranian origin. Uh, ZAG is a commercially sophisticated company, and they did not have an effective compliance program in place that was commensurate with the level of risk. So as part of its uh, remediation effort, ZAG developed and implemented a U.S. export controls, an economic compliance manual, and appointed a sanctions compliance officer. Well, the case here demonstrates the importance, again, of companies operating in high-risk industries, international trading here, to implement risk-based compliance measures, especially when engaging in transactions involving exposure to jurisdictions or persons implicated by U.S. sanctions. 
So it's essential that companies engaging in these types of transactions consider and respond to sanctions-related warning signs, such as goods originating from being loaded or unloaded at ports located in or transshipping through countries or regions subject to comprehensive U.S. economic and trade sanctions. Well, that's where we are on OFAC and uh, as of this date, and we'll continue to monitor the situation and update this as uh, necessary. But hopefully these cases can give you some insights as to some best practices and some ideas that you can implement for your sanctions compliance program. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. Volkoff Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. At ethical companies, employees believe in the company, they feel vested, and are more productive. As a result, misconduct rates are much lower and financial performance is higher. We can help you achieve these benefits through an effective ethics and compliance program. You can learn more about our commitment to effective ethics and compliance programs at our website, www.volkoflaw.com, our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our new podcast series. You can contact me at my email address, mvolkoflaw.com. Let us know how we can help you achieve your goals.